I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This year, as the U.S. government argues over the weather to spend another almost $1 trillion to stimulate an economy ravaged by COVID-19, and the U.K. government likely to have increased public sector borrowing by £215 billion this year, And with central banks lowering interest rates to often below zero and going mad with QE, is there a chance that they might be doing too much? It sounds unlikely, doesn't it? But some are saying that with all this extra money, when the economy bounces back, it's going to bring with it hefty inflation. So is that something we need to keep an eye on? Or is inflation a thing of the past, at least for now? We'll look at all of that today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. So, Steve, there are those who argue that the economy is being overstimulated. And they, the, the reason they give is that the, the effect of the downturn that we've been seeing with COVID-19 is immediate because we see shops close, demand falls, jobs are lost, production decreases. But the impact of any stimulus that we put in, whether it's fiscal stimulus or whether it's uh, central banks pretending that they're doing stimulus as well, uh, that takes longer for the effects of that to be felt. So you can over-respond. That's the argument. Is that, I mean, is, is there any credence to that argument whatsoever? Oh, one thing that does matter, of course, in economics is timing. Of course, yeah. economists are experts in that because they leave time completely out of them and also haven't got a bloody clue uh, as to what the timing actually is. But yes, if you if you uh, – this, this is one reason that, for example, uh, Minsky was actually critical of discretionary um, fiscal policy. Not uh, he's, he's more in favour of uh, fiscal policy being built in in the sense of tax rules uh, mm. that the, the, you know, increasing rate of tax during a boom uh, d- diminishing during a slump uh, because of the timing issue because if you get the timing wrong then um, you can be apply- applying a you know, a, a, well, you're trying to slow the economy down when it already is doing that, and so on, and, and reverse. Right. But that, and, what he's what, yeah. what he's suggesting there might work in a normal cycle. But it, I mean, it this, wouldn't this work. This is not normal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So it wouldn't apply. It, it, this no, year. I, I think it's I think it's a ridiculous worry to have right now. I mean, uh, given what the COVID has done to the global economy, it's pretty crazy to say oh, we shouldn't be trying to help it recover too much. And uh, and what worries mm. me the most. Uh, as usual, is uh, what what happens during uh, uh, has happened during this crisis is an unprecedented uh, increase in the level of corporate debt. Uh, if you look at the American data, and uh, which is the main one that I, I tend to keep my eye on, and we've had a, a cyclical trend towards higher levels of corporate debt um, before COVID struck. So if we go back to before we can actually formally date it, uh, which is about 2000, it was in the beginning of 2020, before any borrowing related to COVID started turning up in the data, then we had the highest level of corporate debt since the Great Depression. Uh, if you go back to, say, um, the 2010 peak, for example, the, the level of, of, of corporate debt uh, was about 70% of GDP, or before COVID hit, it had hit 75%. Mm. Um, and, but that was actually with a gradual process starting. It, it bottomed out at about, 
uh, let's see, 60, 65, 66%. It rose over the last, um, uh, you know, five years to about right. 75%. But it's gone up from 75%. I was actually trying to get my, was my cursor not moving, 75 to 78% in two months. Well, I mean, that would be great, though, wouldn't it? If that was companies saying, oh, well, look, we've lost some of our competitors. Here's an opportunity for us to grow. So we're going to we're going to borrow to grab more market share. But I sense that is not what's happening. No, I think what's happening is people are saying we've got it. Our cash flow is screwed. We've still mm. got to pay the landlord. Um, so we're going to access our line of credit. If yeah. we have so you think it's very much I, small business that's doing this? Because I mean, uh, large, large business is either doing well or it's gone to the wall, it seems. I think it's, well, it has to be both because this is, I mean, this is American data and mm. they, they break it down into households and corporates, data from the Bank of International Settlements. And like in looking at the data over, uh, uh, what is it, 110, 105 years, uh, this is, there's no, been nothing like this in the last one century. This yeah. is much of an increase. So I think it just is simply emergency borrowing by corporations to be able to pay the commitments they can't uh, yeah. themselves stop breaching and then bang this huge increase in debt. It's not something which is adding to productive capacity at all. It's not something which is adding to demand at all. It's simply saying we can pay the landlord fundamentally. Yeah, and that is a concern. I mean, that would mean that there's not enough stimulus or the stimulus is going yeah. in the wrong direction, which I think is almost certainly the case. We could talk about that. But the reason that some people, and I must admit, it's a very small number. I mean, even sort of conventional economists are saying, that let's not worry about inflation. Mm. But there are a few people out there saying, uh, you know, when it all comes bouncing back, we're going to have to worry about inflation because there's so much money swilling about the economy. So the OECD forecast for all OECD countries is that uh, in Q2 next year, uh, inflation will peak at work just at 1.8% before slipping down to 1.5%, but then back up to 1.8% by the end of 2022. So that's a way off. And the same places like Europe, it's going to be much slower. But they reckon US inflation is going to hit 2.8% in Q2 next year. So there is a danger, isn't there, that central banks and particularly governments who are looking for an argument to become more cautious, fearing inflation might rise more, will look at that and say, well, this is a reason to pull back 2.8% inflation by Q2 next year. Yeah, well, that's a, that's the central bank forecast. Uh, and, and, mm. and, and, and they have been completely wrong about the rate of inflation uh, for, the, for the last 20 years. Um, so I, I think that's we, we, what, what you're getting is a set of predictions out of neoclassical economic models, uh, which... Uh, which is if you if you look at the predictions they've made versus what actually happens with the real data, all you get is these upward predictions of the rate of inflation and downward prediction of the actual downward path of the actual rate of inflation. So again, I think this is uh, you know neoclassical economists fighting the last war with the technology they have that lost the war anyway. So um, and like mm. I'm just looking at that when you made it, I, I hadn't looked at that data. Uh, myself for some time. So I've just actually uh, loaded my uh, inflation data and taking a look at it now. And if you go back to, let's say, that's a good date. Uh, back to 1991, you had a 6% rate of inflation. Uh, and the trend from that point, oh, if you go further back again, like 1980, you had 15%. But the trend since that peak, which was hit uh, just before Vokla slammed the brakes on the American economy by whacking up interest rates to the order of 17%. Uh, the trend has just been downward all the, all the while. Yeah. And the most recent data, looking in uh, uh, 2020 <coughs> May and 
and uh, May hit uh, a rate infl- annual rate of inflation of 0.1%. And yeah. it's, now, it's now back to, uh, up to 1% uh, over, over the but, but but the trend is just down. I, I yeah. think the expectation. Well, I mean, people, more, more people are talking about deflation, aren't they, rather yeah. than inflation? That prices are are going to go down because there's uh, the, the subdued demand. But one of the arguments for inflation is that it's being driven by uh, through producer prices. If they if they rise, the cost of goods increases. So it doesn't matter about wage push inflation. Uh, it's it's being it's the cost of production. Although it's hard to fathom that one out because uh, uh, you know that it, it's been rising a bit in the United States. But we look at China, which is doing uh, pretty well right now their producer prices the ppi as they call the producer price index is actually falling so uh you know so then more more of an argument for deflation rather than inflation yeah i mean overall if you if we were just looking at a world without climate change then my expectation would be continuous deflation that's why i called my site debt deflation when mm. i first started doing this stuff Oh, 15, 20 years ago. And, uh, and, and that's just the overall trend. It's got two elements to it. One is the impact of private debt. And this is the, 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 the complex one that I've, I found in doing my Minsky modeling. Uh, you, uh, the increasing level of private debt is paid for by the working class. Uh, with the feedbacks that exist in the system, even when I've got in my model, when I model how capitalists doing the borrowing to build literal factories, no Ponzi behavior at all, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, because there are three social classes you need to worry about, capitalists who are you know, building the goods, building the factories and, and make, make the goods and services, workers yeah, who work guys. in those. Pardon? I'm just uh, simplifying. They're the good guys. Then you've got the workers who are the good guys. And, and then, then you've got, you got the, the bankers who are the wankers. And, <laughs> and, and as you have an increasing level of debt going, going, uh, driving up uh, the debt levels, which we've been seeing, if you, as you know, until the financial crisis hit and then now, now happening again to some extent, that increasing debt means that more mm. money goes to bankers. And it actually... The, the dynamics are such that the, the capitalists sort of stay around much the same level. The increasing share of going to bankers comes at the expense of workers. Now, the workers, in turn, are the main source of inflation. So if you have a lower amount going to, to workers overall, they've got less bargaining power, uh, the rate of the inflation falls. And when yeah. I model it, that's what I get. I get a tendency towards deflation. So that's that's still my expectation. If we didn't have climate change in there, and and that then then that so would be. We- yeah, yeah. I know, look, we're going to look at you, we're going to look at your predictions for this year next week. Mm. So uh, mm. maybe we'll talk more about that there. But mm. I mean, the argument uh, that's given for inflation uh, is that it's it's to do with money supply. That uh, you know, it's all to do with debt monetization. If if, if we all had jobs uh, and there was a labour shortage, but governments kept on borrowing and QE was a thing. I mean, I think some people still argue that you would have inflation because the argument is from some quarters is that quantitative easing is increasing. The money supply, and so that's inflationary. But we know we've discussed it in the past. QE is and it's misunderstood, I think, by central banks themselves. QE is not actually increasing the money supply. No, it's it's a dribble of money. That if if you you can see some money out of QE turning up in the actual money supply, but you know, as we talked about, we're talking about MMT uh, over the last month or so. The, mm. the, the say that when there's a purchase of bonds by the central bank. Uh, off the off of the financial sector, which is what QE is, is an asset swap. It does nothing to the liability side. It all happens on the asset side of the banking sector, and yep. it doesn't change the liability. So it can't change the amount of money. It changed what back what backs money rather than being uh, backed by 
bonds, it comes back by reserves. And then because it's backed by reserves, uh, there's less income for the banks. So they then are encouraged to go and buy shares with that money. Uh, and, and, and that that money itself turns back as that in the banking sector because, of course, the share brokers and the people who sell the yeah. bank shares also bank with the bank. So the money, the metal reserves doesn't change uh, that dynamic, but it puts more buying pressure on the stock market. And then if you have that buying pressure translating into a rising price level, which is you know, clearly what's been happening, and then people, some shareholders sell their shares to capitalise that gain, then the fraction that they, they might then spend some of the money they get out of that back into the real economy. So you might get a one in 10 uh, boost out of QE into the actual money supply. But it's 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 not a multiplier, it's a divisor effect. And it's far yeah. less effective on the money supply than, than the central banks believe. And it's certainly not going to be enough to cause any impact on inflation whatsoever. So no. we can we can put that uh, put that one to one side. Mm. What about though? I mean, with so many bond government bonds being issued, bonds at uh, at such lows in terms of, of of yields, hundreds of years lows, uh, you know, often often negative. Uh, I, I mean, the way we we work now, it, it's all seen as a cheap debt for governments, but only because people buy them. One one fifth of global GDP is now debt in negatively yielding bonds. So, what if investors stopped buying them? If, if money finds somewhere else to go, demand for those bonds drops. Uh, so, so the yield on those bonds will increase theoretically, but of course we know central central banks step in and buy even more of the, yeah. of the blasted things. I mean, I mean does that? Yeah. I mean, that that it, we find ourselves in a very curious position, don't we? So that you know, are, are we overstimulating because we're basically issuing so many bonds, so much government debt that that, that central banks are now looking after? It's only if that money turns up on the liability side of the banking sector. Now, it, 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 so you have an increase in the amount of money in cash terms in the in the in the in, in, in cash or bank accounts in the yeah. hands of the of the private. But that's sector. what happens, isn't it? I no, mean, when the, be, not with but the bonds, if, yeah. but with but with QE, if if the if the central bank is buying them, oh, of course the the banks have got to buy them in the first place. Of course, haven't they? Well, you know, again, the, the the basic mechanics on the. Of the of uh, the running a deficit, and this is again Stephanie Kelton's point of the deficit myth. When the government runs a deficit, that increases bank private bank accounts, which are liability of the banking sector. It increases the reserves by equally as much. Uh, that's what actually gives you money into the real economy. And there has been a large amount of fiscal, uh, you know, a dramatic increase in fiscal uh, stimulus to to counteract the downturn of the economy due to COVID. But when the bonds are getting involved, that's just simply swapping what happens on the asset side. Mm. So to, to expect any any result result out of that, it's it's a. I mean, I'm trying to think of a, a car analogy that makes sense with modern cars, but it's it's pretty. It's like 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 thinking if you you know, I, I wind the windows down, you're going to go faster. I mean, sorry, it's it's irrelevant. I, don't know, I had a car like that where actually that probably. <laughs> Would have been the case. So, you going downhill, wind the windows down, get the air behind you. Uh, but the um, just, if, I'm still trying to get my head around this a little bit, though. Mm-hmm. If you've got a government okay. issuing a, a, a great deal of debt, um, then th- that is increasing the, uh, the the money supply because they because they're spending more, they're putting more money into the into the economy. And this is so. Can you go too far? Do we get back to that? You know, that first question. If they if they overspend too much, could they? 
over overstimulate the economy because we don't realise the the impact it's having until perhaps it's too late and they've gone too far. We we could be we could have that happen, but at the same time, what's what's been happening with a lot of the um, you know things like you know, loan repayment holidays that the banks have been doing. Uh, during the crisis, uh, that hasn't been saying, "Oh well, we're going to, we're not going to charge you interest at all." It's saying, "No, we're going to the interest we charge you. We're not going to expect you to pay this month, but we're putting it onto the onto the debt you currently owe us." And in fact, that might be partly what's happening with the increase in corporate debt that I spoke about earlier. It may well be the the unpaid interest being added onto the capital uh, that the banks are doing right now, rather than anything voluntary by. The, the corporate sector. So that's anything but stimulus. And that means that when, when the economy, uh, you know, is, it comes out of COVID and you then have, uh, corporate banking saying, right, now we're going to charge that interest. It'll be interest on a, on a large, and of course, we're not, we're not talking government rates, which are close to zero. We're talking private rates, which are of the order of three to five percent at least. Uh, then there's going to be an increase in the debt charge on those companies, and quite a few of them will will fall over on the other side of the recovery. Yeah, you're talking about corporate bonds here. Yeah, corporate debt. But, well, yeah, yeah. But the, I mean, go, so the same is going to apply with government debt as well, isn't it? In, in that there will be, uh, well, let's take Japan for example. The Bank of Japan holds 400 billion uh, of of bonds through QE, government bonds through through QE. Mm. And they'll never get rid of them. And it's obviously the same in the, the US now and it, increasingly so in Europe. Central banks are holding all of the all of these uh, government bonds that they are never going to be able to let go of and put back into into the open market. So you, what is the long term effect of that? Does it uh, the economic consequences of that where you've got central banks just holding government debt? Zero. Right. Close, to, close to zero. I mean, again, and, and as Stephanie puts it in the deficit myth, uh, it basically means the banks are holding. I think she had yellow yellow dollars versus green dollars, uh, because again, the deficit itself creates the money. It's not. It's not whether the, how, what's done with the bond side of things. It's simply whether they run a deficit or not. And of course, there's been a bigger deficit this year uh, than in, than in any previous year because of the scale of the spending on the on the uh, coronavirus. I haven't got the latest figures on that front, but looking at the uh, the level of the government surplus in America hit. Minus 10% of GDP. In other words, a 10% of GDP deficit, uh, in 2010. And it then went right up to about a 2%, uh, uh, deficit in, let's see what the data there. That's about, that's 2015. It's been trending down since before COVID mm. hit. It was about a deficit of 5% of GDP. I don't know what it's going to come out overall when we start looking at the figures for, um, uh, 2020, but it's quite like, likely to be 10 to maybe 10 to 15% of GDP. Now that's putting cash into the economy. That in normal situation would be a very large stimulus for the economy. But at the same time, we've had the private sector encumbered like it never has been before by an absence of cash flows, courtesy of the coronavirus and the lockdowns. So what happens, though, if all this money that's been spent by the government isn't doing any good and we come out the other side with the, the, the consequences of COVID-19, uh, you know, the, the downside of, of COVID-19 hitting the, uh, the individuals and companies and government money having been racked up, the debt being racked up with governments that feel like they've got to uh, pay that money back, even though the consequences of that money was uh, pretty short-lived. For example, the, the furloughed workers scheme cost an absolute 
packet in countries like the UK. Mm. It didn't stop the UK seeing 370,000 redundancies in the three months to October. All that money did was delay those redundancies. The UK, mm. the hours worked is about 10% lower than a year ago right now. That's, mm. that's the real unemployment level. And we've got companies collapsing. Almost every company is cutting jobs. 820,000 fewer people on, on company payrolls in November than were there in February. So that's uh, what, about one in 20 workers have lost their jobs so mm. far this year, just in, in, you know, in half a year, basically. Uh, and yet we had the furloughed worker scheme. Uh, so a lot of money spent on that. It doesn't look like the, the ongoing consequences of that have been very good. Well, I think they're better than not doing it. I mean, this, if, this, this is you know, what I argued way, way back uh, when it was first obvious just how strong this pandemic was going to be. This is not the sort of thing a private system can survive. If you maintain all the commitments people have prior to a downturn like this and then uh, and then people can't service them, then everybody's going to go bankrupt. Uh, everybody, I mean, renters can't pay the rent, landlords can't pay the mortgage. Uh, if the banks foreclose, they end up with, uh, you know, vacant properties that they're, they're, they're trying to charge people, uh, you know, interest on and the people themselves are bankrupt. So no, it, it's, it's, you simply have to have an enormous amount of government stimulus. We haven't done enough. The furlough scheme should have been twice or maybe even three times the scale that it was. And then you, you would have, uh, you know, prevented the, well, you, the rise of unemployment would still have happened uh, to some degree, of course, mm. but you wouldn't have had the financial consequences of that for both the corporate sector and the workers. Yeah, it's hard, isn't it, though? Because if you take, for example, how how long do you keep it going for? So the airline sector uh, obviously has been uh, w- one area which has seen thousands and thousands of jobs going. Mm. And we know it'll come back, but it won't come back to the full scale. So do you furlough everyone based on where it was or where it's going to be? And do you run it for several years till you see the the whole of that sector uh, come back? Or do you say, well, no, at some point you've actually got to stop being an airline steward and uh, you've got to go and do something else? Yeah, but again, whatever happens, you're going to have to provide a a non-market-based source of income for people to do that because – uh, it, it's, you know, it's quite likely airlines may never come back uh, to anything like what they were before COVID. Uh, for, a, for a start, uh, I mean, as, as unsatisfactory as Zoom meetings are, it's become a part of a part of the ritual. We use Zoom for meetings, and you're going to have to give a damn good reason in future to explain why you have to fly from you, you, from America yeah. to Europe uh, when you could do it by Zoom. So that's sort of that. That's like a habitual change. So that being the, the case, if you're if, if you're telling plus the fact that you know we're seeing wages probably going down, you know, because of that deflation we were talking about. Mm. If you're going to pay me eighty percent of my wage as it was for a job that's not going to exist, uh, which is more than I would get switching to another job, I'm going to hang on to that that furloughed salary for longer so you know this is a case of you know can, can you overspend in this area and and actually uh, manipulate the market in a you know the, the way the economy operates in a in a in a bad way because you're sustaining something that really shouldn't be sustained what you what i think you need is a transition from furlough uh to a trans to a scheme which is about an employment transition uh at a similar level because what you really need is is the cash flow and it, it's all very well to focus on the um, you know, uh, we're maintaining industries which are dying side of things, uh, they, and they may well die. But if they die and they take the aggregate demand down with them at the same time, then it isn't just that economy industry that collapses, it's the lot. So the whole idea is to try to maintain aggregate demand as best you can. 
And in, in that, given what we've got at the moment, that's uh, the, the government should be running you know, massive deficits compared to what they normally do. Mm. Um, and not worrying about the fact they're racking up uh, you know, government bonds uh, on and uh, and and cash reserve based reserve style cash in the banking sector, it just has to happen. But is is there a danger that it's it's we are going to continue with, with this us and them? So uh, so while governments are being pumping money into the, into the economy, there's a lot of untapped money which is sitting in uh, in people's bank accounts. So the, the, those people who've kept their jobs. Have actually been saving their money. The household savings ratio in the UK, for example, which was bumbling along at around six percent of income for the last few years, shot up to twenty nine percent in the second quarter of this ah. year. I, mean, I think for a couple of factors, I think one is people are fearful, but secondly, they couldn't spend it because the shops are closed. Uh, but I mean, a, a chunk of it will also be saving. You know, the old argument about saving for for a rainy day. Uh, th- those people are going to be doing quite well. Uh, you know, you'd hope that they will next year they'll start spending some of that. But that's only half the economy. The other half, of, you know, the ones who aren't saving, the ones who aren't saving because they haven't got any money because they haven't got a job. Mm. Yeah, I mean, but a similar thing happened in America. And what it really was a sign of is just how lousy wages are in the gig economy because uh, mm. the, the level of household saving and consumption both rose early on in the crisis because people were getting more from the subsidies, even the $600 a week uh, that was America was trying for a while, was more than a lot of people were living on in the, in the, uh, in the, in the gig economy before COVID struck. So, uh, But, you know, o- overall, this thing is a huge shock to aggregate demand. It's a huge shock to our productive capacity as well. And it's not the sort of thing the market economy can cope with. So the government should be spending and not worrying about not spending, about worrying, we shouldn't be worrying about spending too much. We should be worrying about spending too little. But do we also, though, need to look at more closely about where we're spending? So should we, and, you know, sh- and should tax be used as part of it as well? If you've got a whole load of people who've got a job and they're doing quite well and they've been saving, is there an argument there to say, well, okay, we need to, we need to, well, either tax them or incentivize them to spend. I mean, maybe you can do that with with taxation. We need to get something out of their bank account so that they're spending money that's going to employ uh, those people who aren't working. Well, actually, I saw an interesting comment about the 1920s um, just recently, just as somebody's comment on Twitter, I think, and and that was that maybe we can explain the the, the craziness of the 1920s by the the shock beforehand of the Spanish flu, because just like we're now. You know, cutting back on human human contact, uh, and wearing masks, and, and and social distancing, and not going to restaurants, and so on and so forth. The same thing happened with its own historical uh, variations to today. Back at the end of the Second World War, with the with the Spanish flu, and partly the reaction after was so bloody awful. Let's get out there and party, and that may have been part of what gave us the Roaring Twenties. It, it's an intriguing thought, and I think. We will mm. see. I mean, you know, the fact that I know, like living in Thailand, where there's no worry about COVID, uh, people going back to restaurants and parties and so on, uh, the, the, the locals are doing it uh, because they had this tight period of a lockdown. Nothing like what's happened in Europe and America, where it's been bungled so badly and going on, therefore, you know, you'd be going back into lockdown in and out of it all the time. It might well be that people want to spend up and socialise on the other side. But I still yeah. think, uh, you know, you, you're going to need to 
you know, you're going to have to expect that the aggregate demand be on the deficient side after it's not on the excessive side. And you've certainly got to expect debt service and all the issues with corp- with private debt to be worse after the crisis rather than better. Yeah, which gets back to the whole, uh, you know, we've talked about it so many times, the, you know, the debt jubilee question. Mm. Uh, do you, I mean, now would be the time to do it because it would... It would give those people who are carrying debt as a consequence of COVID-19, even if you looked at you just said, well, OK, let's look at it as tempor- a, a measure based on how much debt has been incurred in the last year. Let's look at writing that off in, in some way. Um, but I'm wondering whether you actually need to do it to, to everybody, because as I say, you know, there's those people who are saving almost a third of their income uh, because they've been able to. And they're going to come out and be able to. They're the ones who can party next year. The ones who can't party next year are the ones who are struggling to survive and put food on the table for the kids. They won't yeah. be partying. They'll, they'll still be struggling to survive. They still won't have a job. Um, yep, but, I, but I, I, I don't think the, the, the point of a jubilee is, is not, um, you know, it, it's to just simply reduce the debt levels. It's not, it's not there to say let's, let's change the uh, distribution of income uh, between uh, you know those who are savers and those who are spenders in the economy, it, it's changed the amount of reduced the amount of credit money that's backing the, the financial system and increased the amount of, of fiat money. And mm. um, on on that front, I mean, one one thing that the only benefit I've got out of uh, the coronavirus, in some ways, is that I've actually gone through and worked out in more detail what a jubilee would look like because it it's gone from having a snowflakes chance in hell to maybe a snowballs chance in hell of actually happening. Mm. What a shame we don't have snowballs anymore because of global warming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who needs hell? We've got it on Earth. <laughs> we're already here. Oh, we're getting Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Uh, well, look, uh, and on that note, Merry Christmas, everybody. Um, and uh, we'll, um, we'll be back next week, uh, just before the new year, uh, to talk about your predictions for 2021. Now, I thought I'm going to have fun with Steve on this because I'll go back and look at what his predictions were for 2020. Yeah, I'm bracing Actually, myself. I'm bracing myself. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to call the COVID you know amendment what? on that one. Yeah. You weren't too far off, though. Really. You're kidding. It's, uh, no, After all I that? Think, no, you're going to love it. I mean, okay. apart from, obviously, not mentioning a virus, which I thought was remiss of you. Yeah, well, yeah uh, I, mean, but, I missed the virus. Yeah, it was a big mistake. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But otherwise, uh, yeah, pretty spot on. So we'll do that next week. Um, but uh, have a great Christmas uh, there Thank in you. Thailand. And uh, we'll, we'll catch you next week. Okay, Matt. Bye. And you have a great Christmas as well. Thanks for listening this year. Uh, look, even if you don't believe in God, take the presents and enjoy the roast turkey with all the trimmings. I'm Phil Dobby. He's Steve Keen. Back again next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.